We're going to uh, look this morning at John's Gospel, chapter 11, and verses 21 to 27, which uh, we'll read together now. Now, Gary will be looking at this passage this evening in a more general sense, but I want to just pick up on the words of Martha uh, in this uh, chapter. It's lovely that I have a granddaughter called Martha, and uh, this is one of the lovely characters of the New Testament. So, John's Gospel, chapter 11, at verse 21, let's hear God's word. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever believes, uh, lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes and enable us to hear things from your word that will bring us comfort, perhaps bring us challenge, and whatever you bring to us, may we rejoice in that comfort and not ignore the challenge, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last week I said uh, we were beginning a series in the morning looking at what I believe God has led in my heart for the next number of months that our mornings would be about the cross and the glory of Christ. It seems to me that as I envisage moving out to concentrate on Jesus is the best thing to do. So last week we looked at the glory of Christ who we call Messiah, one of the most significant titles for Jesus used in the Scriptures. And this morning, we want to look at this title for Jesus that Martha used, calling him Lord. If you lived in the Middle East or had lived in the Middle East in the first century AD, then to say Jesus is Lord may well have cost you your life. It was perhaps the most radical thing you could have said in those days because the Roman Empire ruled and the Roman Empire, which had its grip on the then known world, said to everybody, Caesar is Lord. And said that to the extent that not only did you pay your taxes to Caesar, not only were you subject to Caesar in ruling, having your land been ruled, you were told to worship Caesar as divine. So to say that Caesar was Lord was to say that he was the ruler of the land, the ruler of the then known world, but also to be worshipped as divine. And so when Christians began saying, it's not Caesar that's Lord, but Jesus is Lord, was highly subversive, highly controversial, and highly dangerous. It could have cost you your life. It was laying down the gauntlet to the authorities of the age, to the whole world order, and saying there is another Lord one who is superior, one who is greater. Today we would say a higher authority than the prime minister, the president, the queen, or the king. 
Now, of course, in the New Testament, there are those who undoubtedly use the word Lord in referring to Jesus as some would today as a mark of respect say, sir or madam. But increasingly in the ministry of Jesus, his disciples and others began using the word Lord in a deeper sense of seeing it as a term referring to the identity of Jesus as God in the flesh. Last week I referred to the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi where he said of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But this morning we've read another confession, this time from the woman we read off earlier in the story of Lazarus that Gary will return to this evening. Martha was the sister of Mary and a sister to Lazarus. They had an open and hospitable home to Jesus and the disciples. He loved going there and they loved going there for the food was good and the company was good uh, and it was a comfortable place where Jesus could chill and be himself. I think Martha gets a bad press. The bad press comes because of the gentle rebuke Jesus gave her when, during a meal, her excessive concern for the practical details was so great that whilst Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, very like a disciple would have done, actually, Martha got annoyed that she was in the kitchen working away and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and not helping her in the kitchen as she should. And that little rebuke that came from Jesus to her. We, we say sometimes to people, I don't want to be a Martha, I want to be a Mary. Well, I think Martha gave to us and to the church the most incredible confession of faith in Jesus that you might have, certainly on an equal footing with that of Peter. And let me read it for you again, John 11 and verse 27 Uh, And Jesus challenges her, do you believe what I've just said about being the resurrection of the life? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. She calls him Lord because she recognizes that he is the divine Son of God. It would be ludicrous to dismiss Martha's calling Jesus as Lord here as a polite form of address. Because to her, Jesus was much, much more than a mere man. But think of the context here. Lazarus is dead and buried in the tomb. And Martha expresses her frustration to Jesus that had you been there, Lord, then Lazarus might not have died. So look at what Jesus says in verse 23, these amazing words. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And he's picking up on a great Jewish belief in life after death. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus comes with this incredible statement, one of these I am statements of Jesus that could only have been made by someone who is absolutely a raving lunatic or someone who is absolutely who they said they were, and in this case, Jesus claiming to be God. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he takes upon himself the ability to confer eternal life 
unto those who believe in him. And then he turns to Martha and says, do you believe this? You see, Martha, like many Jews, had a belief in resurrection, but Jesus turns that belief into something based on his character and nature and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says that belief in him will produce everlasting life, resurrection, joy, and certainty. And putting Martha on the spot saying, do you believe this? She responds, yes, Lord. And I wonder, is that your response and mine this morning? Of course, Jesus demonstrated the truth of his lordship by then going on to bring Lazarus back to life, restoring him to his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And he then went on through his own death and resurrection to prove beyond a shadow of doubt that he is indeed Lord and God. And so the title Lord became perhaps the most common description of Jesus in the New Testament that follows. The Apostle Paul wrote in uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and chapter 5, or, or verse 5, these words. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Listen to what Bible commentator Charles Cranfield wrote of that verse. We take it that for Paul, The confession that Jesus is Lord meant the acknowledgement that Jesus shares the name and the nature, the holiness, the authority, power, majesty, and eternity of the one and only true God. You see, to say Jesus is Lord is not a polite form of address, but to say that he is indeed King of kings, Lord of lords, God in his very nature and character. What does that mean for us this morning? I want to make a number of suggestions of what it means to say Jesus is Lord. First of all, I want to say that he is Lord over death. As Leon Morris wrote, death is but a gateway to further life and fellowship with God. Death is just a passageway. It's not a terminus. It's so important that as Christians we understand that. Death is not a terminus. It's not the final destination. It's not where you can go no further. It's not the end of the end. It's a passageway into eternity. And to explain the importance of that, I was really struck by a story told by Gary Burge in his commentary on uh, on John's Gospel. It's a story... Uh, about a, a lady called Barbara, and I, I, I warned my wife it would be a story of a lady called Barbara. But I, I want to share this story because I think it illustrates what it actually means to say Jesus is Lord over death. He writes this, Gary Birch. When I was in seminary, I had my first internship at a Lutheran church where I was asked to lead a group of high school students It was a wonderful experience in which I was mentored for the first time by a pastor and experienced lay leaders. The lay person working closest to me was a woman called Barbara. She was a model of conviction and hope whose heart was very devoted to the church and its ministries. For six months, I valued every moment in which she provided advice and inspiration to continue in the ministry. And then one day, Barbara gave me a phone call I will never forget. She said she had a brain tumor to explain the gradual deterioration of her otherwise athletic physique. 
Most remarkable of all, the tumor was inoperable. I watched as Barbara wasted away. Two months later, just before she died, I remember Barbara taking my hand and talking with confidence about her faith. She knew this was hard for me. And her last words to me were these, Don't worry about me. I'm about to go on the greatest adventure of my life. Soon after she died. This story is important because it says that Barbara's confidence in death was not a shallow optimism that denied the anguish of her experience. She looked it straight in the eye. Nor was she persuaded concerning the doctrine of the resurrection as if that alone would hold some importance for her. Her confidence was grounded in the strength of her knowledge of Jesus Christ. She knew him. She knew who he was. She knew his power and his ability. And she knew that he was waiting for her the moment she died. Therefore, the Christian's confidence at the grave has little to do with her intrinsic potential to survive death. It has everything to do with our understanding and confidence in the power of Jesus. Jesus overpowered death at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus likewise overpowered the dead, the dread of death for Barbara. That's what it means to say Jesus is Lord over death. Secondly, Jesus is Lord over life. Let me uh, turn to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And this is what Paul has written. And and this is perhaps a a strange verse, you might think, if we're using the point Jesus is Lord over life. But this is what he writes, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, as Christians, we're called to live life in a new dimension. We're called to live life as human beings who no longer live life my way, not at all. We are called to live life the Jesus way. Darkness has given way to light. Self-centeredness has given way to focusing on what pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. So like John the Baptist, we might say, I must become less and less, and he must become greater and greater. But you see, to say Jesus is Lord over life, I think is an intrinsically challenging thing. It it means that whatever we face in life, whether it's difficulty and disaster, whether it's illness like the one we read about that Gary Bird spoke of his mentor, Barbara, who died of a brain tumor, It's to say that Jesus is Lord over everything that happens to me in life. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Jesus is Lord over life. If I've been crucified with Christ, then my life is his to do with whatever he wishes. Whatever he allows me to go through, whatever joys I experience, whatever sorrows I experience, it is his life to use as he wishes. For I have been crucified, says Paul, with Christ. He is Lord over life. And thirdly, I want us to think for a moment that Jesus is Lord over our possessions 
and money. Look at Matthew chapter 19 and uh, this story, verses 16 to 22. We may not read all of it. Uh, it's the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and in verse 16 he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Isn't it great, by the way, that eternal life is spelt D-O-N-E, done. It's not what we need to do, it's what Jesus has done for us. That's the great thing of the gospel. And Jesus carries on the conversation and he says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. And the man says, which ones? And Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, etc., etc. And then he looks at the young man, verse 21, he says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. We read in verse 22, when the young man heard of this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. The problem wasn't the man's money. The problem was his attitude to it. His money and his possessions were more important to him than God. Sometimes when we talk about the Christian principle of tithing, it's not actually about how much we should give God that we need to be concerned about. It's really all about our attitude. But actually, as another aside, do we tithe? Do we give to God a particular proportion of our income that we pray about and think about and put into practice so we know precisely how much of our income goes out to specific Christian projects? But it's not about the 10% or the 15% or the 5%. It's actually to say that everything we have belongs to God. He is Lord of our money, our bank balances, our possessions. He is Lord of everything. And it's really about attitude. Because if money and things and the pursuit of them are more important to us than God, then Jesus is not Lord of our lives at all. So one of the challenges might be, as I've skimmed over this, what might it mean for you and for me actually today to say, Jesus is Lord of all I own and all I earn in this world. Jesus is Lord. I want to finish, well, not quite finish. There's another small bit at the end, but I, I want to spend a bit of time on something deemed to be a little bit controversial. Uh, and in picking up something that's controversial, I'm only too well aware that I skim over the surface of so many things on a Sunday morning. We don't have the time or the ability to go in to the depth that we, we ought to have. And I'm skirting over areas in the next minute or two that for some people are hurtful, and I want to acknowledge that. I don't mean to hurt people, but I, I want to say that Jesus is Lord over our sexuality. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that this morning because I believe it's one of the hottest issues in our society at this time. People say, I have a right to a partner, a right to having children, a right to a relationship. And I have to say to anybody who says to me, I have a right to anything in life, no, you don't. And of course, for some, that can come across as being hurtful. But you see, for me, being a Christian means I no longer have any rights because they've been crucified with Jesus. Everything that I have and every right that I might think I have has been 
submitted to the cross of Jesus Christ and nailed there with Jesus. And everything I have in this life is there by the grace of God. And we get so concerned about rights in our society. And we need to understand that not one of us has a right to life except by the grace of God. You see, the Bible condemns sinners as those deserving of death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you see, by the grace of God I've been saved. Freed from the penalty of sin and the misery of guilt. By Jesus Christ's death and resurrection I've been given you an everlasting life as a sure possession here and now, not at some stage in the future. I've been granted the status of being a child of God. And all I have is in Christ. And all this applies to my sexuality and your sexuality and how you and I regard it and use it. Perhaps the best way to tackle this is to look briefly at some passages of Scripture. This is neither meant to be exhausted or able to be exhaustive, but simply suggestive of what the Bible teaches us. Much more could indeed be said, but let's look at some of these verses. First of all, Mark's Gospel, chapter 7 and 20 to 23. You see, Jesus is speaking of our sexuality here amongst other things when he says this, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts and women's hearts also, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceitfulness, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. That's why Jesus needs to be Lord over our whole lives and over our sexuality. And in the world in which we live where there's Uh, A government that has allowed in the United Kingdom men to marry men and women to marry women. We deal with this very superficially, and I apologize for that this morning, but here's what Hebrews 13 and 4 and 5 says. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. No one has yet provided me with any convincing arguments that would change my view that the Bible teaches that marriage ought to be only between a man and a woman and that all forms of sex outside of marriage covenant is sin that needs to be repented of. You see, I think the danger is that we get so fixated on gay marriage that we forget that the Christian standard is that sex is reserved for within the marriage covenant, and that marriage covenant should be between a man and a woman. Now, I don't want to be sounding judgmental or uncaring or getting at anyone. It's simply a statement of biblical fact that if Jesus is Lord of everything, He must also be Lord of our sexuality. And therefore, how we express that must be consistent with what the Bible teaches. 
Let me turn to another passage, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 and uh, verses 3 to 8. And th- there isn't time to go into this. I hope it, it speaks for itself. Uh, but this is what Paul writes. Uh, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable not in a passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You see, I I, I think... I want to say this sexual sin is so common that we're all guilty of something. Don't think for a moment that those for whom you can say or think they have sinned in a big way sexually are worse than you or me. Because I think the truth is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God to use another scripture. And let's not judge others who fall far more than we think we have fallen, if it's possible to think that way. Therefore, the grace of God go you or I. You see, I think the wonderful thing is the forgiveness that God brings, that there's no sin so great. You know, I, I have had people with issues around sexuality and sexual sin, and they've, they've got so worried, have I committed the unforgivable sin? There's only one unforgivable sin, only one, and that is the persistent, willful Rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only unforgivable sin. When you think of it, it's logical. God must and can forgive anything in the whole world that we might do wrong. Except that one thing. If we reject Jesus, he will reject us. And that's a very sobering and important thing to remember. But you see, there's not one of us is better than the other. So don't go around judging those who have fallen from your standards or mine. They're no worse than you or me. And don't be thinking that because you may have sinned in a particular way that has been mentioned in these verses of Scripture, that you're beyond God's forgiveness and grace. You're not and nobody is. But if we're serious about Jesus being Lord, then he must be Lord also of our sexuality. And here's one of the great things of Scripture. In Jesus, there's a way out. 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 12 and 13. I I love this. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It will never happen to me. I will not fall in that way that that person over there has fallen. It will never happen to me. Be careful. If you think you're standing firm that you won't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Wow. You see, whenever I sin, I sometimes think I am so original in my sinning that nobody else would ever have that problem or difficulty And yet Paul says, in reality, he says, no 
Temptation has come to you except what's common to man. If you think that you're tempted in a way that nobody else is, that's a lie of Satan because everybody's tempted in the same way. They just won't admit it. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out that you can stand up under it. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond that which you can bear. And you see, here's the thing. When I sin, it's because I choose to sin. When I sin, it's because I love it. When I sin, it's because I've taken my eyes of Jesus and I've looked inside and I've said, I want to live life my way, not his way. But when I sin, it's because I choose to do it rather than choosing the God or Jesus way. And there is forgiveness for all of us. But Jesus must be Lord of our lives. He must be Lord of our money and our possessions and Lord of our sexuality. And I want to finish with this. Is Jesus Lord of me and Lord of you? Jesus never actually made it easy for people to follow him. He told thieves to stop stealing, liars to tell the truth, adulterers to stop sinning. He told people to count the cost, and he challenged those who had other priorities, like the rich young man that came to Jesus, those who had idols in their lives, sort yourselves out and then come and follow me. He gives no promises of wealth or health. He gives no promise that we will not suffer. Indeed, he indicates that suffering is a likely outcome of acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. You go into work tomorrow morning and say to all your colleagues or all your school friends or all your fellow students, Jesus is Lord, and see what happens. He gives no promises that life will be without suffering. And he gives no magic solution to the difficulties of life. No magic wand to wave that waves away your problems, your difficulties, and all the things that hassle us in life. But here's the thing. He forgives sins. And he not only forgives our sins, the Bible says he chooses to remember them no more. He wipes the slate clean and he says, I'll never cast that up before you. I'll never remind you of it. I'll never even mention it again. He chooses to remember our sins no more. He promises eternal life. Right here and now, right in this place as we stand or sit, you have eternal life if you have asked Jesus into your life to be your Savior and Lord. He promises his presence and power in our lives. He gives us his spirit. When he was on earth, he was physically present with the disciples and those who could meet him and hear him. But he promised that when he was going back to the Father, he would not leave us alone but send his Spirit to live in every single one of us. He promises his presence and power in our lives. He promises to journey with us in all that life throws at us, in all that even death throws at us, so that at the end, like Barbara in that story that Gary Burge wrote about, Death becomes not the terminus, but the passageway to what Barbara called the greatest adventure of life was just about to begin. What a way to die. The greatest adventure is still there. 
And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Do you believe that? If not, will you believe that? Let's pray. Father, it's easy to say Jesus is Lord. They're just words that can trip out of our mouths. And it may be that this morning some of us have a a bit of business to do with you to make those words Jesus is Lord, not just a form of words but a practical reality might be in our attitude to death or to life or to money or possessions or sexuality. Maybe that we need to bring to God something that we've allowed to become an idol that needs to be smashed and dethroned. Maybe you could take time just to pray if there's anything like that in your life And maybe you could invite Jesus to be Lord of everything. And maybe you've never asked Jesus into your life. That's not like a recruiting campaign where Jesus tries to make it easy. He says, count the cost. Don't expect health and wealth and freedom from suffering. It's not the best advertising slogan in the world, but we're talking about eternal life and forgiveness of sins. So maybe today someone needs to say, Jesus, would you come in and forgive my sin and become Lord of my whole life? And you may ask that for the first time. Whatever response you need, just take a moment or two to respond now in the quiet. Lord, I ask of myself the question, are you the Lord of me? May I and each one of us join Martha in that wonderful profession. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. And we believe it not just as nice words on the page, but words that change and transform our lives forever and ever and ever.